0: So I'm going to ask you to take your uh, Bible into your hands. If you don't have a Bible, grab that Bible in the pew rack or in the blue chairs uh, where you can uh, find our passage today on page 31. We're going to be in the book of Genesis at the beginning as we uh, begin our series that we've entitled Joseph, Seeing the Good in God's Detours. And uh, we're going to spend the next... Uh, Three or so months uh, on the study of the life and times of a character uh, that many of you uh, already know about uh, because of Andrew Lloyd Webber and the uh, musical uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Many of us are aware of some of the story that comes straight from the pages uh, of Scripture. And today we find ourselves learning a little bit about uh, the beginning, the introduction, a little bit about the life and times of Joseph And we're going to do so by exploring the first couple verses of Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Our small groups have already studied this passage, and so it's a great opportunity uh, here early on. If you haven't signed up for a small group, one of the great things about joining a small group is you get to uh, hear and discuss and study the passage before I preach it, and also be a part of some great community. And so if you want to be a part of a small group, you can sign up in your friendship registry uh, with regards to that. But let's go ahead and look at uh, Genesis 37. Uh, We're going to read the first couple verses, and then we'll go all the way through verse 11 this morning, but we'll do so kind of in a staggered way. And today it's really all about history, learning about, again, the life of Joseph and the family that he grew up in, and we'll draw some implications and some applications from our uh, text this morning. Genesis chapter 37 uh, begins this way. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing uh, the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Let's stop and let's ask for the Lord's blessing this morning. Father God, we come together and we thank you for the opportunity to gather as a people. And we come from all different places, all different backgrounds, We have all different kinds of weeks, Lord, where there's been some of great difficulty, some of great joy, some of disaster, and some of success. And Lord, even as we look to a new week, some of us are looking forward to the days before us, while still others of us are concerned, worried, anxious. And so Lord, as we gather from all different backgrounds and all sorts of people with all sorts of lives, Lord, we recognize that your word teaches us all. It speaks to us, it addresses our concerns and our anxieties, Lord, it, can, it, it addresses our joys and our excitement. And so, Lord, as we pick up this le- uh, lesson, as we pick up this story, as we look to the life of one of the great men of Scripture, let us recognize that not everything around him was tidied up or perfect. Lord, you used him in powerful ways amidst great difficulty and dysfunction so lord challenge us to do the same in our lives of dysfunction in our lives of difficulty may we honor you in all that we say in all that we do we give you this time now lord and ask your blessing for it in christ's name we pray amen now i know i run the risk and i push the envelope by using a beer advertisement as an introduction and as a sermon title but i believe it strikes to the very core of what we're seeing in the life of Joseph. Dos Beer uh, should win an award for marketing based on their commercials that talk about the most interesting man in the world. You see, they use this gentleman, a bearded older gentleman, full of dignity and, and full of all kinds of great accolades. And the reason why they do it is they want you to think that if you drink their product, then you'll be like this man. And the thing that makes the commercials absolutely hilarious are some of the things that they say that the Dosekis man, if you will, uh, has been able to do. I want you to notice a couple of them. When a tree falls in the forest and no one is around, he hears it. His signature won a Pulitzer Prize. He can kill two stones with one bird. He once won a staring contest with his own reflection. When he attends the opera, it's not over until he says it is, and because of that, he's the most interesting man in the world. It goes on. Uh, he's won the Lifetime Achievement Award twice. He has taught old dogs a variety of new tricks. He tells his milk when and if to expire. If he were to mail a letter without postage, it would still get there. He never wears a watch because time is always on his side. And because of that, he's the most interesting man in the world. It goes on. He's the cure for the common cold. He once started a fire using dental floss and water. He fought the law and won. I like this one. Google uses him as a search engine, and roses stop to smell him. (laughs) He's the most interesting man in the world. You see, we use these types of marketing devices because there's something about being a person of great interest. There's something about a person who does things that mere mortals, if you will, can't. I'm here to tell you this morning that we are not studying a fictitious character like the Dos man. What we are addressing today is a man, real flesh, real blood, who walked on this earth, who was just like you and me. And yet Joseph is going to show us why he is one of the most interesting men in all of the world and in all of human history. The very things that we'll read about, things that I know I struggle with on a daily basis, Joseph seemed to pass those tests with flying colors. He would be the prized son of his father. And he would go from a place of great privilege to a pit. And from the pit, he'd be taken into slavery into Egypt. He would be made a slave in a house by a man named Potiphar. He would climb the corporate ladder showing success in all that he did until one day the wife of his master would hit on him and try to seduce him. Being the godly man that he was, he would turn away from her advancements and even as she tried to grab him and to take him as her own, he would flee and run away from immorality. What would that good gain him? It would gain him a place in a pit again, in a dungeon, in prison. In prison, he would do so much good that the warden of the prison would give him charge over all the other prisoners. That's unheard of, a prisoner watching prisoners. But we're not dealing with any ordinary man. We're dealing with one of the most interesting men in the world. Because of that, he would uh, come into contact with two of the king's most important men the cupbearer, and the baker. And in doing so, they would have dreams, and he would console them in their time of great despair by interpreting the dreams through the help of God. In doing so, what he says absolutely comes to fruition. In doing so, one of the men has the opportunity to have the ear of Pharaoh in Egypt. As a result of that, Joseph says, remember me. Remember me when you are back with the Pharaoh. Tell him about my unlawful imprisonment. Let him know I can be of some good outside in the world as a law-abiding Egyptian. The man doesn't remember Joseph's desire. And for 13 years, Joseph would spend very long and arduous times in a pit. And then Pharaoh would have a dream. A set of dreams in fact and Joseph would be brought in to Pharaoh's court he would interpret the dreams and he would have an opportunity to reside as the prime minister of all of Egypt he would do all things well was he God no was he our Savior no but he's a model of what an ordinary person can do in the hands of an extraordinary God You see, the things that Joseph did are things that you and I have at our disposal. Through proper faithfulness and obedience, God can position each and every one of us to do great things for Him and His kingdom. It may be behind the scenes. It may be in your workplace. It may be before the President of the United States. Joseph teaches us that whether in the pit the palace when we obey God God reminds us all the while he is with us and he'll watch over us he will protect us he will give us what we need he will be with us every step of the way and that is why Joseph is the most interesting man in the world now how did this guy come to be A man with such amazing character, amazing courage, a man that simply uh, is successful in all that he does, where everything he touches prospers, must have come from an amazing family. His lineage must have been filled with hall of famers. Because this amazing young man at 17 years of age shows an intellect and shows a love for the things of God that would blow away people three times his age but here's the amazing thing the family that he comes from is not a brilliant one it's not an incredibly deeply faithful one but we're going to learn today that the most interesting man in the world came from one of the most messed up families in all of history this should be an encouragement to you this morning maybe today you come from a family full of dysfunction I remember when Amanda first met my family I thought my family was normal everybody does right I remember Amanda said the next time I visit with your family I need to bring earplugs you guys are crazy loud it's like number 10 on the stereo all the time I've got a headache just thinking of all that you guys have talked about. And you talk a lot. You talk over each other. Do you even hear what each other is saying? I said, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> and here's the crazy thing. She's joined it. <laughs> and here's the funny thing. She's gotten loud. <laughs> it may be because we've got three stubborn children. I don't know. But we've all got dysfunction. I could spend hours on Amanda's family. I mean, no, I mean, we've all got dysfunction in our families. Maybe we had a messed up mom or dad. Maybe we didn't have a mom or a dad living with us. Maybe there's divorce in our life. Maybe uh, there were some terrible, horrific decisions that were made, made whether by us or by someone else. Maybe there's a family dynamic that makes the Thanksgiving dinner table a battle royale. This should be a great reminder that God works miracles amidst broken families. That God can do uh, the extraordinary through messed up, broken people like ourselves. To be able to see the story of Of the life of Joseph we begin in Genesis 37 because that's where we see the first mention of Joseph we are told he's 17 years old it's the first mention of this guy other than that he was born to his mom Rachel and his father Jacob and so what happened in those 17 years what made Joseph become the man that he was I am here to tell you by the age of 17 I had experienced as a teenager most of the foundational and fundamental things that would happen in my life. Things that have set the course of direction from that point on. I've shared this over and over again. But at 14 years of age, the thing that I would say most pointedly uh, was uh, the fundamental life-changing matter was the death of my brother at 14 years of age. It changed the course of who I was. It changed my personality. It changed my outlook on things. In some ways, I believe, it changed my calling. I went from being a boy who lived in the shadows of an amazing older brother. I shared this with my small group. At 14 years of age, as a freshman, my brother was a senior in a small school. My brother was a well-known guy. He was in the running. He died in September. He was in the running uh, for Homecoming King. I was an overweight not very funny, not very good-looking 14-year-old, and I lived in the shadow of a good-looking, popular, everything he did was great, older brother. And here was the problem. When you die, you go from being immortal to immortal. All the bad stories, all the bad grades, all the mess-ups that my brother had were forgotten, and it was all the good stuff. And he dies. And that would revolutionize who i was it would change in a heartbeat the kind of man that i would grow up to be you see teenagers have huge things in their lives that impact the way that they look at life and we're going to look at some things in joseph's life from 0 to 17 that have massive effects on his life as an adult. You see, those first 17 years for all of us are years that define in many ways the direction or trajectory that we're going to go in. But here's the thing that I want to remind you of. If you were to look, and as we will, six major chapter uh, breaks, if you will, in Joseph's life, all of them are bad. And maybe you experience a terrible childhood. And you've come to the conclusion that God has no purpose or plan for you. Joseph is a reminder that no matter how bad your childhood was, God can use it for the good. He can take you and take the most heinous and ugly things, as He did in my own life with the death of my brother, and use it for great good. I may be wrong in this, And I will be made right when I stand in glory. But as I shared with our small group in our discussion, I believe I would not be standing here today doing the things I'm doing with the skills and gifts that God has given me if I was a middle son in the shadow of Crispadol. And God had to take my older brother... Something that would, would grieve us as a family for years. Even to this day, we're heartbroken of the loss of our, of our dear brother and son. But I rejoice because what, what can be deemed as bad for man, God can use for good. And so Joseph is a great reminder of how a bad story can turn out well. And no matter what age you are this morning... No matter where you find yourself this morning, have hope because God has a plan for you. And His plan for you is a good plan. It's as if when Paul writes God works all things together for the good in the book of Romans, he was thinking about the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And so, with the limited time I have, because I've got to get you to the barn bash by 4 o'clock, Let's look at this messed up family and I'm going to move fast through these things and and I'm going to give you the passages You can look at them Uh, in our small group. We studied many of these things And so you can look at our small group information, but notice the messed up family that we had it begins with a chaotic past it begins with a chaotic past like so many dysfunctional and broken families It doesn't begin in the here and now, but it started somewhere way back in the past, and it does in Joseph's life. Joseph's family is dysfunctional, and it begins because Joseph's dad and his brother, and Joseph's grandma and grandpa, Isaiah and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, were a dysfunctional family. In, In Genesis 25, we learn about Jacob. Jacob, Joseph's dad, is quite the enigma he is one who God would use in great ways but we're gonna learn this man that God would use a patriarch of the faith at times absolutely failed miserably for God and the people around him in Genesis 25 turn there for a moment just back a couple of pages to Genesis 25 we are given in essence the the history or story of Jacob and it's chaotic through and through In In Genesis 25, starting in verse 19, it says the following. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years when he took Rebekah, the daughter, uh, you can pronounce the names later, um, as his wife, okay? And shows where Rebekah's from. She's the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children, there were twins, struggled together within her. Think about that. There's this fight going on. Okay, so Isaac's watching the belly of Rebecca. Okay, there's WrestleMania happening there. Some of you ladies have had pregnancies like that, right? Where all kinds of craziness is happening, and so it was so bad. Moses, I don't know how Moses knew this when he wrote the book of Genesis, but he says, listen, the battle royale was going on in the belly. Okay, And so he goes on and he says, okay, they're wrestling, they're fighting with one another. And she said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body like a hairy cloak. It's like aliens, you know? I mean, It had to be messed up. Kind of this little Sasquatch. So what do you name Sasquatch? You name him Esau, right? The hairy red one, okay? Gosh, I hope my mom didn't describe my birth like that. (laughs) Afterward, his brother comes out. But his brother is holding on, notice in verse 26, holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. Okay? Now when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, well, Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Here's the important part Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That means he wasn't a vegan. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Oh boy, we got a problem. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright. All your blessing is the firstborn. All of dad's possessions. You see, inheritances aren't given equally to all the children in the Old Testament times. They were given to the firstborn, and the firstborn could deem whatever he wants to do. In essence, the firstborn becomes dad when dad dies. Jacob says, I want that. I want it for my own. And he finds an opportunity. Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What a use is a birthright to me. And so Jacob said, Swear to me now. He swore to him and his, told his sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Notice later in verse twenty-six, or chapter twenty-six, I'm sorry we will see that Esau becomes so angry about that chapter in his life that he seeks to hunt down his brother. Brother wanting to kill brother. Messed up family. Parents could have fixed it, but they play favorites instead. Next thing we see is a crooked deal. Jacob, who's run away from his brother Esau, knows he's got to go. His mom says, listen, you can't stay here. You've angered your brother. You've deceived your father, and there's a whole other story there, where Jacob uh, pretends to be Esau, puts all kinds of uh, hair, animal hair on his body, and fools his blind father into thinking that he's the one. And so the birthright's given to Jacob, the blessing is given, the spiritual uh, uh, blessing is given to to Jacob. Esau so angry tries to hunt him down. In doing so, Rebecca says, "Go to my uncle's house." His name is Laban. We pick up the story in, in uh, Genesis 27, verse 41. So Jacob comes and he goes to find safe harbor in his uh, uncle's home. And as he does, he finds that one of Jacob's great uncle's daughters, Rachel, is beautiful. And he falls in love with her. He says, listen, I'll work seven years To have her as my bride you see this in Genesis 27 verses 41 through 45 and so he labors for seven years and on the day of the marriage he's all excited he's gonna get the love of his life Rachel the marriage ceremony goes and just so you know there's something some sort of veil something that keeps Jacob from seeing uh, Rachel they go to the marriage bed after the wedding reception they do what new married couples do, and then the next morning, and again I don't understand this is an ask Jesus question when we get to heaven. How did he not know it wasn't Rachel? Okay? But he doesn't. He wakes up the next morning and next to him in bed is the older, not as fair looking sister Leah. Oh boy, Houston, we've got a problem. He's indignant. I worked seven years for your daughter, Rachel, and you give me Leah. Laban says, hey buddy, you always give away the oldest first. She's always the one that's going to be married first. You can't marry the younger one first. It's got to be the older one. The deceiver, Jacob, is the deceived. Jacob's chickens came home to roost. So Jacob doubles down, listen, I'll work another seven years, you give me Rachel. So now he's got two wives who are sisters. You think that's a good idea? Uh Uh-uh. Okay? But this guy's got to have it. Instead of settling and saying, you know what? It is what it is. My great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam was told by God, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, not two or three or four flesh, one flesh, in a monogamous marriage, He blows it and he makes a decision. I'm gonna marry the other one. I'm gonna have two wives Well, who had two wives before well his great grand or his grandfather did And it didn't work well for him and So he has two wives and we see that that crooked deal turns to competing marriages I got to get moving here in this we see the story in Genesis 29 31 through 35 Genesis 29, 31 through 35, and then Genesis 30, 1 through 22. Here in a nutshell, Jacob has created a massive issue for himself. He's got two wives, Leah and Rachel. Well, the big thing back in the day was that you're a great wife if you can produce children for your husband. Leah starts doing that. Rachel doesn't. Leah's all excited, and she says in that passage, Listen, every time I give birth to another boy, my husband will love me. She already knows she's unloved, that, that the favorite one is Rachel. And she's sitting there going, I've got all these attachments. We're connected now by our children. Obviously, because we have children together, he will love me more. Rachel's barren. Rachel knows that there's no connection to her husband without children. And so she does the unthinkable. She brings her maidservant, Bilhah, into the mix. And she says to Jacob, Hey, I know I can't give you children, but I give you my maidservant. So you go be with her, and she will give you children. And those will be children, default, if you will, from me. And Jacob says, You know, no, 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 I, I guess I can. And he does the unthinkable. Now he's got three women in the mix. Bilhah starts giving uh, children to Jacob. Leah becomes barren. And she says, well, I guess I'll do what my sister did. Here's Zilpah. She's my maidservant. She'll give you children, and they'll be by default my children, and we can still be one happy family. Jacob says, no, no, really, I can't. Okay, I guess I will. Now we got four women. All competing all competing for the affection of a man all competing for the attention of a man let me make this abundantly clear while God gave allowance meaning he did not strike dead the morons who took on more than one wife God has always said anything besides one man one woman is sin and the Bible never paints a picture of functionality of good when there's always been more than one wife in the story and it creates all kinds of turmoil and so you've got this family you'll have at the end of it all twelve sons one daughter I want you to see I got a selfie of the family I want you to see real quick they took took forever to get them together but here's what we've got we got in the middle right here uh, Jacob and uh, And Rachel with their newborn son, Joseph. Benjamin would come later. But then we've got uh, Leah in the blue with her clan, okay? And then we've got the two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah, with their two children each. Can you imagine what the holiday dinner party looked like with that crowd? Well, dear, the turkey sure is nice. Oh, Leah, your green bean casserole was delectable. Oh, Zilpa, that, that stuffing was out of sight. Oh yeah, and Bilpa, you make the best pumpkin pie. Think of the dynamics of the children. Dad's not spending as much time with me. It must be because he hates my mom, but he loves that Rachel, doesn't he? You see, what a messed up family. All because of one singular foolish decision notice it moves on to criminal behavior criminal behavior genesis 34 genesis 34 tells us the story of jacob's only daughter dinah twelve sons he would have and one daughter you think she was protected you better believe it and this is the daughter of leah and in genesis 34 we are told that dinah is uh, um, living with her father Living near the the town of, of Shechem in a city of or an area filled with Canaanites, people that did not follow the ways and decrees of god, but jacob 's there because he 's running away from his brother Esau and he 's also by the way at this point uh, running away from his uncle Laban because he 's left laban and so there 's turmoil and trouble all over the place and what takes place is she 's out doing whatever daily task, and one of the men from the town his name was Shechem itself he would come and he would assault Dinah rape her and then in some weird motion fall in love with her and he goes to his father and he says I want this foreigners daughter Dinah I've slept with her and now I want to make her my wife the father knowing that there could be trouble with a a neighboring clan goes to uh, Jacob And he says, listen, can we figure out something here? We've got a bad situation. Let's make it right. And Jacob seems to turn a blind eye to it. He seems to be unaffected that his daughter had been raped. Her honor had been stolen away from her. And he says, you know, kind of do whatever. And he sends his boys. And his boys are indignant, especially Dinah's full brothers from Leah's clan. And they say, listen, this is what you need to do. All right, uh, if Shechem's going to marry... Dinah then then he has to follow all our rituals and commands He's got to follow our God and one of the things that we do is we circumcise all men Shechem, You're gonna to have to be circumcised Shechem agrees to it But he says hey, but it's not good enough because if we're gonna have one marriage then, then why why shouldn't we all get married and and Have children together. Let's become one big happy family. Let's right this wrong And so the brothers say listen all of your men in all of the town have to be circumcised How would you like to have been the guy that had to announce that to everybody? All right, everybody, here's the deal. On the third day, when the pain, the Bible says, was at its worst, Leah's sons go into the city and kill every adult male in the town. We don't know how many, but we've got to assume the number had to be at least 100. And they kill every one of them. The Bible says in Genesis 35 that they take all, all of the children... And the women and take them as their own. They plunder the city and take all of the goods and livestock. They are part of one of the most heinous crimes in all of Scripture. And this is Joseph's brothers. Right when you think things couldn't get any worse, they do. Because we've got criminal behavior by his brothers. Notice we've got creepy passion. Creepy passion. In Genesis thirty-five, verse twenty-two, we are told of some real weird stuff. Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, the eldest brother of Joseph, puts it in his mind that he wants to sleep with one of his father's concubines, Vilha. Now, most scholars believe the reason why he's doing this is to stake his claim to all of his father's inheritance. Let me let me tell you, I don't care what his reason is, it's sick. And so what does he do? He does that which is totally abnormal. He goes and sleeps with a man who's sleeping with his father. And because of that, Reuben loses his firstborn privilege. And it's handed to someone else. All of the benefits, all of the blessings of being the firstborn are taken away from Reuben because of this ghastly sin. And they are given to someone else. And that's where we end up with verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 37. Notice in the text we see who gets that blessing? Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Many believe that this is not so much a tattletaling but more of giving a report that his name, the father's name, had been defiled by his brothers. Jacob sees it, wants to honor his dad. So he brings the report, listen, hey, your sons are doing what they did in Shechem again. They're bringing reproach to your name. I just want to make you aware of that. Not because I think I'm better. Not because I think that I'm uh, more obedient. But because I don't want to see your name defiled. And so he tells them that. But notice, now Israel, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers because he was the son of his old age. This young little boy was brought to Jacob as an old man. He had fallen in love with him. And so he made him a robe of many colors. Favoritism hits a second generation. And it's shown in a costly and colorful gift. It would seem the coat of many colors angered his brothers. Now why? I'm sure Jacob had bought gifts for each of his sons. What was this one that made it so big and so profound? It was in essence really not just the colors of the jacket, but translators believe it was the size of the coat. It was a flowing coat with long sleeves and a flowing uh, hemline to it that dragged down to the ground. It was a jacket that said, This man is not a worker but a boss. This guy doesn't get dirty, he directs attention. And so with that, the brothers become angry. Here is one of the youngest commanding the attention of the oldest. He is the one that is found to be loved in such a way, without any kind of hiding of it, his father's love. So here we have a short history of the household that Joseph was born into. In our small group, we started our series talking about our family. What kind of family did you grow up in? I want you to imagine for a moment, Joseph joined your small group, okay? Hi, my name is Joseph. I'm new to Village Bible Church. I come from a large family where my uncle hunted down my father trying to kill him. Then I have a great-uncle who fooled my dad into marrying the wrong woman. To fix it, my dad married not only his First wife, but then he married my mom, too. sister sister-wives. And when there weren't enough pregnancies, my mom and my aunt gave my dad two concubines for Christmas. Because of that, I have 11 brothers and one sister. Well, my sister, sadly, she was raped. And he was called to marry her attacker because of a laissez-faire father. So my brothers, wanting to right the wrong, went and became killers of an entire city. And then stole all their women and children and all of their goods. It was around my 15th birthday that my older brother wanted to sleep with my father's concubine. Because of that, my brothers Dan and Naphtali, they don't like Reuben all that much. And my brother Benjamin was born. And that's when my mom died. My dad thinks I'm the greatest kid to have ever walked the earth. And that makes everyone hate my guts but I'm just glad to be a part of a Village Bible Church small group. (laughs) Wow! Wow! I'm so glad, listen, that the Bible doesn't sanitize any of this, because it reminds me how absolutely sinful sin can be, and how broken and messed up it can be. So what do we need to draw from this I want to give you a couple applications. First of all, as we look at this, first we must look at the life of Jacob. Lesson learned from Jacob. A man who has great experiences with God can still sin greatly against God. And so maybe you've experienced great things from God. Maybe God's used you in amazing ways. Well, don't think that you're immune to massive sin in your life. David is a reminder of this Samson's a reminder of this I can't tell you how many the Apostle Peter is a great reminder of this great men and women of faith can do great sin before a holy God So be careful walk with your God closely Don't ever give up on your faith. Don't ever take a vacation to your spirituality number two a lesson from a messed up family Great family a great family thought I'm sorry Amidst great family thorn bushes can bring about great roses. And so maybe this morning you come from a horrific family. Don't let your family define you. Let your faith in God do that. And blossom. And be the man or woman God has called you to be, just as Joseph did. Third, favoritism is alive and well as it was in Jacob's day. Favoritism within the family. Parents, be very careful. Love your children. It can be hard. Some children are easy to love. Other ones are hard. I did not make it easy for my parents at times to love me. But what I never doubted was that they loved me any less than my brothers. we've got to be careful with that. Finally, listen, our decisions are real decisions, and they carry long-term ramifications. Jacob made decisions in his youth that would follow him for all of his life and would bleed into the families of his sons. And so make wise decisions. A messed up family produced because of God's grace. My second point, a man of faith. A man of faith. We dig into the life of Joseph because we want to see some invaluable lessons. We want to see how those lessons impacted the life of this great man of faith. But the story of Joseph is much more than a great story that teaches some moral lessons. It teaches us a couple other things. Let me just go quickly through these. Joseph shows us a preview of Christ. A preview of Christ. While I am not one to dig deeply into what scholars call topology, that is, holding that things in the Christian life are prefigured or symbolized in things in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to Jesus. But when it comes to the life of Joseph, you, you can't turn those things away. There are so many similarities to the life of Joseph and the life and times of Jesus that they draw us together that they have to be some sort of preview. Let me give you a couple of them. Joseph and Jesus both had a close and intimate relationship with their father. Joseph and Jesus were both sent by their father to serve their fellow brothers, only to be betrayed, beaten, abused, and sold for profit by those who were closest to them. Joseph and Jesus would go from a privileged position to the place of a servant. Later on, like Joseph, Jesus and Joseph would encounter two criminals, both of them who were guilty while he himself was innocent. While being with those two criminals, we learn that one would be condemned and one would be saved. The baker loses his life. The cupbearer is saved. Jesus to the left and to the right has two criminals. One who jeers and and abuses with his words, Jesus, and the other who is saved. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. We see Joseph uh, over and over again be a man stricken and abused by others for crimes he did not commit and probably the one that's most striking is that the very men who sought to kill Jesus and Joseph would be the ones who would need to be saved by their regal authority A.W. Pink the great uh, Bible preacher says that there are more than 101 parallels between the life of Joseph and Jesus. I don't know if that's true, but I can tell you there's a lot. And it previews, it's a reminder and a preview of what God was going to give His people in the perfect Son of God who would take away the sins of the world. Notice it's a portrait of the Christian life. It's a portrait of the Christian life. We are going to see over and over and over again that Joseph is going to live in the valley of defeat and agony, and at the mountaintop of great thrills and victory. And the Christian life is between those two peaks and valleys. And what Joseph is going to show us is that whether today you find yourself on the mountaintop, you worship and praise and thank God and you remain faithful to Him. Well, maybe today you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death. Your response is no different than the mountaintop. You are faithful, you obey, and you are diligent to stay true to God, His will and His word. And the life is going to be like this, and your life is going to and you don't need to, as First Peter says, wonder or be surprised why these strange things are happening to you, as if God has left his throne, but trust him, obey Him and do His will. Finally, we see the plan of God, the plan of God, and how we must respond. In verses 5 through 11, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And he told his brothers and said, Behold, I have another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now you'd say, what a foolish thing to do. Tell someone your dream. We've all done it before, right? We have some crazy, weird dream and we tell someone about it. And the reminder we're given is, hey, don't eat uh, pizza before you go to bed. But Joseph tells a story and he tells the dream. He tells two dreams, in fact. And I want you to recognize this morning the, the reason why he does. Because earlier in the story of Jacob, Jacob tells his children about his dream his dream where there's a stairway from heaven. Led Zeppelin didn't come up with it, Jacob did. And Jacob tells the story to his children. And Jacob knows that that dream came from God, that God spoke to His people in those days through dreams. And so Joseph comes and he says, I had this dream. And the brothers of Joseph would have known, oh boy, God spoke to our Father through dreams, now He's speaking through Joseph in dreams. Listen, I want you to make this very clear, the brothers of Joseph knew exactly what those dreams meant. That God had a spotlight on the brother they hated, because they knew God was speaking. And What this reminds us is is that God was telling Joseph at the beginning of his life I've got a plan for you and the brothers hated the plan and so here's our response and I have to close this down When God speaks in our lives Joseph reminds us that when the plans are before us We must respond properly to it and so you've got three responses number one you can turn against it like the brothers did I don't want nothing to do with it. I'm going to fight it, and we're going to learn what happens later next week. But I want nothing to do with the plans of God. And some of you this morning are here and say, I don't like the plans God has for me. And I'm going to go my own way, do it my style, put it on my plan and my schedule. I'm not going to do it the way God wants to. And you will end up like Joseph's brothers, filled with a life of sin. You could be like Jacob. And you could hear the plan of God and you could think about it. It's stuck in Jacob's head and some of you this morning are here because you like thinking about religious things. You like thinking about the Bible. Oh, it doesn't change your life. It doesn't cause you to run away from your sin. But you feel good after leaving. Boy, sure, Tim did a nice job. The worship team sang good songs. I enjoy the coffee. But it never leaves your head and moves to your heart. And the story of Joseph says, when God puts plans before you, and he's put plans before each and every one of us, you can turn against it and fight it, you can think about it and let it sit in your head but never touch your heart, or you, as Joseph did, can trust it as right and good. And Joseph said, God, if I'm in the palace, I'm going to obey you. God, if I'm in the pit, I'm going to obey you. God, if I'm being seduced by my master's wife, I'm going to obey you. God, when I'm unlawfully imprisoned for a crime I didn't commit, I'm going to obey You. God, when my brothers come into Egypt later on, and I'm the Prime Minister of Egypt, I'm going to obey You. I'm going to obey, I'm going to obey, I'm going to obey. And the story of Joseph is of a 17-year-old boy who led the singing of a song I grew up with. Oh, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Will you do that this morning? Will you do that this week? Joseph's reminder is no matter what came his way, he never complained and he never compromised his faith because he knew God was in control. Do you know that? And will you live according to that? Or will you be like his brothers? Or will you be like his father and miss the blessing of God working his plan out in your lives? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for your word. And Lord, we had to come to a hard and fast landing today because of time. And so I just pray that, Lord, we would think about these applications for the one who's fighting your will and plan for their life, that you would impact them before they make foolish decisions as the brothers of Joseph did. Father, I pray that you would move out of the casual and lazy spirit of Jacob in the lives of so many of us today, that we just think about these things but never do anything about it. That today would be the day of action. And Lord, I pray that we would walk out as a group of people, changed and transformed, so that we might trust and obey your plan and your will. It's not going to be easy. It may lead us down a road of dungeons, or it may lead us to great places of delight. Lord, whatever it is that we, like Joseph, would trust and obey. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, not watering down or sanitizing this horrific story and a reminder of what your grace can do even when sin blows it over and over again. We need that grace now, Lord, as we go out into the world. So bless us with it. Empower us with your Spirit so that we can trust and obey. Now send us forth in fellowship with one another, Lord, And I pray a blessing on our time in the second service, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.